Well, good morning. It's good to see you. How many are glad you're here? I'd say that was relatively weak. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Here's what I'm glad about. I'm glad I'm preaching this morning and it's not about sex. Okay? For, the, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, um, we just finished a, a, what, a five-week series on Song of Solomon. And uh, I'm glad it's done. Hey, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, on a, at, here at a venue on uh, the Long Point campus or maybe at an off-site uh, campus, on the internet, podcast, wherever you happen to be. We're glad that you guys are along uh, too. Hey, let me ask you a question, all right? We're starting a new series, Book of Philemon. First of all, before I ask you the question, let's say Philemon together. Philemon. Say it again. Philemon. For those of you who are Cajuns, Philemon. Let the good times roll. Okay, let's say. So anyway, we're going to start, we're going to start this series book of Philemon. 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 Let's start over again. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever known somebody, maybe you knew them from high school, college, you know, whatever, and let's just say they were somebody that you thought they'll never change. They'll never change. Maybe somebody in your family. They'll never change. And then you have a chance meeting with them later in life, and wow, everything's different. You, you have anybody like that in your mind? Let me give you a, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Johnny was a guy I grew up with in high school. We were both on the wrestling team, and, and Johnny was a maniac. Just, uh, there are a lot of guys that are on wrestling teams that are maniacs. He was a maniac. Uh, he was a hard liver, hard drinker, hard lover, you know, all the stuff, and... Uh, you know, quickly on his way to Nowheresville. In fact, uh, I lost contact with Johnny, and I figured he was probably, you know, staying for free um, in a jail somewhere, you know, as a ward of the state or something. And to my surprise, uh, one time I went back to Colorado, where I grew up at, and I went into a Dairy Queen. I was making a health food run, and <laughs> there was Johnny. I was surprised to see him. He was surprised to see me. I was surprised he was still alive. And so we sat down for just a minute and, you know, talked a little bit. How you doing? All this. There was something different about him. Something different. He just didn't seem like the same guy. I said, Johnny, you know, what do you do for a living? And he said, you'll never guess. I said, try me. He said, I'm a preacher. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, what do you do? I said, I give motivational talks every once in a while. And I told him what I did. And we shared, shared notes. He changed. I got an email this week that I'm going to share with you, just uh, being transparent. I really haven't talked about this very much. But anyway, this, this email comes in. And it's like, one line, one, one sentence, says, I found you on the internet. Are you the Greg Surratt that went to, and then he named a small, very strict, conservative Bible school in Texas? I'm going to leave it like that because I don't want you looking up the school. And I gulped and I thought, what did I do to him? And... Because here's the deal. 
that was a, how many of you have bad times segments of your life? There, there was like the 70s, okay? And, and I, I haven't talked about it much, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it was a bad time in my life. And I, would, I had just graduated from high school. My high school experience was different than a lot of people's high school experience. I had a rock and roll band. And when everybody else would have spring break, go places where we'd go make money. And we'd go to places like Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, whatever. And, and I had just uh, completed, uh, the day I graduated, we, we went to Chicago. And we did six weeks in Chicago, played uh, three or four nights a week, four or five nights a week. And, um, and, then, and then the band broke up. And... While we were in Chicago, my parents moved from Denver, where I grew up, 600 miles away to some little town in southern Missouri. So I had no place to go back home. Didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Hadn't thought past tomorrow. And then my girlfriend called me, who, by the way, I'm now married to. And she said, I'm going to college. I don't know what you're doing with your life. I'm going to college, and I'm going to this small, strict Bible college in Texas. She didn't say that, but that's how you describe it. And I thought, I don't know what she's going to do. She's going to go down there, and she'll fall in love with somebody, and she'll get married, and they'll live happily ever after, and I'll cry, you know, for the rest of my life. And so I'll just go to college. That's what I'll do. I'll just go to college. Hadn't even thought about it until then. I was going to be a rock star, but I'll put that off, and I'll go to college. And so I went down to this small, strict Bible college in Texas, and I cut my hair because I knew that you would have to do that. So my hair was you know, nice; it was on my shoulders, and, and so I and, and so I went and I paid my money, and they let me in, and um, and they said one problem: you're gonna you're gonna have to cut your hair. And I said, Well, I just did. <laughs> and they said, No, here's the here's the rules, and the rules said it had to be off of your ear, kind of like the Citadel. So you guys know how how it is, you know. And off your ears and off your collar. And so I thought, hmm, I can fix that. So I went to a beauty salon across the street and told them, don't cut a bit of this. I want a perm, okay? <laughs> and I want a stiff one. And so, and so they did it out. I mean, it was out. Pictures, that's why I don't talk about the college, okay? In fact, let me just tell you this one story. When they took pictures for the yearbook, it rained, and I had to walk through the rain. It was just like a droopy mess. But anyway, I had this big 70s afro. And I walked back in and they said, Mm-mm. and I said, oh, here's the rules right here. Ears, collar. Started a really bad time. Okay. And within three months, the administration decided that I would probably be better suited for another college. You understand what I'm saying? This guy sends me an email. Are you the Greg Surratt? from then. How do I answer that? About four words. Yes, I am. Why? He answers me back. He said, a friend heard you speak at a conference, told me about you. I googled you on the internet, saw the scope of what God is doing in your... This guy happened to be one of the most popular guys in the school and went on and he's a preacher and all this kind of stuff. And he said, what he didn't say was, you're the last person I ever would have thought. <laughs> but I know that's what he was meaning. Now, two things are common with Johnny and I. This is what I know. 
I know, number one, we came to a point in our life where we came to the end of ourselves. We had to bend our knee to God. And there was a radical transformation by, of, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Changed our lives and everything became different. I also know this. I also know that along various parts of our journey, there were uh, Christians that were just ahead of us that put their arm around us. We kind of came underneath their wing and they kind of showed us the ropes and championed us and cheered for us, especially at first when other people wouldn't believe that a change had been made. It's the power of the gospel. Now, here's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to take several weeks and we're going to break it down. We're going to study this, this, this little short book, which is a book about the transforming power of the gospel in individual lives and in individual relationships and in communities, neighborhoods, and in cities and sometimes even countries. I'm hoping that it will make a major impact on many of our lives. In fact, I'm hoping at the end of the series that we'll just blow up the church in order to blow it out with what we've learned, okay? I feel that strongly about it. Now, let me, let, let me tell you this. Before I get into today's lesson, take your notes out of your uh, bulletin. You might want to just wad them up and throw them away, okay? Because they, 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 they relate not a bit to anything I'm going to say. I pulled an all-nighter last night. I felt like I was back in my college days because I, I, I felt like I re- it didn't quite communicate what I wanted to communicate. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to communicate to you today. Hopefully the Holy Spirit's going to help me. The passion that's in my heart on this whole deal. So, okay, understand that. Scriptures will be on the screen. Points will be on the screen. Now, if you're at a campus, you'll have the right notes. Okay, it was just at a long point. We don't have them. All right, here's the deal. Philemon is a letter. And it's written by a guy named Paul, Paul the Apostle. Most of us are familiar with who Paul is. He wrote most of the New Testament. Well, let me tell you the circumstances of when he wrote the letter to a man named Philemon. Paul is a guest of the state of uh, Rome at the time. He'd been caught up in the Roman legal system for about four years. He's living two years under what would be called house arrest. He has to rent a house. They have a guard with him all of the time. He's very limited in what he can come and go. But other people can come see him, and they do. In fact, he does incredible ministry during this period of time. You can find uh, when it is in the Bible. It's in Acts 28. It's during that period at the end of the book of Acts. It just barely briefly mentions it. But that's when he wrote this letter. In fact, he wrote several letters. He didn't have a whole lot else to do, so he could do a lot of writing. He wrote the letter to Philippians that we have as Philippians. He wrote the letter to Colossians or Colossae. He wrote um, the letter to Ephesians there. And he wrote this little short, kind of, we call it one chapter, 25 verses letter to a man named Philemon. What do we know about Philemon? Uh, Philemon was a guy that lived in Colossae. Evidently, he ran into Paul when Paul was... Uh, ministering in Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, which or F- Ephesus, w- which is a town about a hundred miles away from Colossae, and um, evidently Philemon, who was not a believer, came, heard Paul speak, and became a believer, became a, a Christ follower through that, and he went back to 
uh, Colossae, and he joined the church there, which churches were in houses at that point, and uh, because it was illegal to have a church building, and so they were in houses and small group stuff and all this. And evidently, uh, the church multiplied, and now he had a church in his house. And so Paul writes the letter to Philemon, who lives in Colossae, and he says, this is to you, your family, and the church in your house. Okay? Now he starts the letter, like most people start letters, really nicely. Dear Philemon, what a great guy you are. I love thinking about you. You're generous. Your faith is known everywhere. You are full of love. What a great, great guy. Because he's setting him up for something. And in the next paragraph, he says, I have a small favor to ask of you. And he says, you know what? I'm going to ask you the favor. I could tell you to do this. I could pull the apostle card. I'm Paul the apostle. But I'm not going to do it. It's the right thing to do. So I think you're going to want to go along with it. He's a salesman. So what is it? What is it? What is it? Here it is. I want you to accept and love the guy who delivered this letter. This is where it gets sticky. Because the guy that delivered the letter to Philemon, who Paul wrote the letter, said, here, you take it. That was the postal service back then. You take it, you give it to him. Knock on his door, knocked on his door, comes to the door. The last person Philemon ever thought he would see was the guy delivering the letter. Because the guy delivering the letter, his name is Onesimus. Onesimus used to be an employee of Philemon. Okay, following me? Tracking with me on this? Employee is kind of a good word for it. He was a slave. Now, slavery then wasn't the same as slavery in America in the, you know, 16, 17, 1800s. But it wasn't a good thing. In fact, Paul condemns it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, a little bit later. But Philemon is a Christian man, very wealthy, big house. He owns slaves. Philemon was one of his slaves. Now, slavery during those times, they actually got paid a little bit. They, it, over time, they could buy their way out of the bond servant issue. That's what they call it, as being a bond servant. Uh, but um, Onesimus who used to be a slave of Philemon, didn't buy his way out. He just left. He was a runaway slave. There were laws against that. There were consequences to that. Uh, not only did he just run away, but he ripped him off before he left. It's like if you rented your house out to somebody and they didn't pay the last month's payment, nor did they pay the damage deposit, and then they took all the sinks and everything with you. Any testimonies to that? That's what Onesimus did. Ripped him off. He's probably thought about him several times over the years. wonder what happened to him. I hope they catch him. And if I ever get my hands on him. This is the guy standing in front of him now with a letter from Paul. And evidently what had happened is Onesimus, after he ripped off Philemon, he went to Rome because Rome was the biggest city of the time. He tries to just blend in. He wants to become anonymous because there's this cr crime in his background. And if he gets caught, there's severe consequences to it under Roman law. So he goes to try to hide and just kind of get out of the way. And wouldn't you know it, coincidentally, he bumps into the Apostle Paul or somebody that knew the Apostle Paul. They said, come over to Paul's house. I want to introduce you to this guy. Comes over, starts hanging out with Paul. Paul shares some stuff with him and he becomes a believer. A believer. 
Not only does he come, become a believer, but he, he gets real tight with Paul. Paul takes him in, he kind of nurtures him and all this kind of stuff. And then at some point he says to him, okay, you got to go back. You got to make things right. He goes, I want to go back. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'll write you a letter. And in my letter, I'll say to Philemon, your former employee, treat you right. And so uh, in, the, uh, in the letter, let me just read a scripture uh, that, that uh, as Paul is writing that, uh, at the, uh, he, he explains Onesimus' conversion to Philemon. And uh, he says, I know you're really mad at this guy. I know you feel ripped off, but now he's a brother. And I want you to relate to him differently. I want you to relate to him as a brother. And he concludes the chapter by saying, Yes, dear brother, please do, not, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Please keep a guest room for me, ready for me because I'm hoping to come visit you sometime. What he's saying is, I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. And hey, by the way, I'm going to come and I'm watching you. Okay? Let's just see whether you do the right thing. Okay, so that's the story. Let me give you three lessons, three characters, three things that I learned from it. Hopefully, it'll kind of uh, help us at the beginning of the series to understand what's going on and, and to say, hey, how can I relate to this story? Lesson number one, Onesimus reminds me that every city has people that others have already given up on. Every city, every community, every neighborhood, most families have people that everybody else has given up on. In fact, in Philemon uh, verse 11, uh, Paul, when he's writing this letter, he says, Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past. That's an understatement. Not much use. He ripped me off. Philemon has written him off a long time ago. Fool me once, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not letting him back into my life. This guy's worthless. Cities are filled with people like that. Why do we give up on other people? Sometimes it's because of what they've done. Some people just make bad choices. And they make them over and over and over again. It's the guy that... You know, commits adultery. <laughs> He's forgiven. He does it again. He ruins a marriage. He does it again. Ruins a relationship. And you go, that guy will never change. He'll never change. It's the, it's the alcoholic. It started, you know, college, just drinking, you know, and they were just having a good time. And, and then they find themselves depending on drink and then they foul up relationships and foul up jobs and then they feel sorry about it and they, and they say, well, I'm going to quit. And they start with an AA program or, uh, you know, uh, celebrate recovery in the church and they fall off the wagon and they do it again and, oh, I'm going to make it different this time. They fall off and people look at them and go, you know what, they're never going to change. They're just not going to. You put the vice in there, whatever it is, whatever it is. And people go, I, I know that story. I'm not going to get close to because they're just, they're never, cities are filled with people like that. Sometimes it's because of their circumstances, where they are. They happen to have been born in an underprivileged neighborhood. And, you know, their brother's a drug dealer and their uncle's a drug dealer. And, hey, that's, that's what they're going to be. Just give up on them. Sometimes they're labeled as that before they even become anything. 
They're never going to graduate high school. There's just pockets of places around the city of people that basically everybody else has given up on. Sometimes it's because of how they look. You know, they just got a different look and, you know, you, you label them and you go, you're never going to amount to anything. Sometimes maybe it's because of their age. They're just too old. I know they'd like to do differently, but you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Every city, every neighborhood, and just about every family has people that just about everybody has given up on. Second lesson is this. It comes from Paul. Paul reminds us that every city needs people who believe in the transforming power of the gospel. Every city needs people, needs pockets of people, needs several people. Every neighborhood, every family needs people who believe in the transforming power. That, yeah, nobody else believes them, but I believe, I believe. Look at what Paul says in his letter. He says, my plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son. I don't see him as a slave. I don't see him as a runaway slave. I don't see him as a guy who has a history of ripping people off because I I just see something in him. I see him differently. I see him as a son. Why? Because he became a believer as a result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now, you know what? He's very useful to both of us. Here's what I believe. I believe that Paul was strategically placed in Rome by God. Paul could have lived at any other time in history, could have lived in any other city. He didn't have to be in prison. He didn't have to be in that rented house. He didn't have to be there right then. But I don't think anything happens by accident. I think that God placed him there so that he would be one who would believe in Onesimus, even when Onesimus couldn't believe in himself. See, most people who are down and out, most people who feel like they can't change, they don't believe they can. They need to borrow somebody else's faith. And Paul was placed... You make the analogy. God placed you. Nobody lives wherever city that you're in by accident. God has placed you there. And one of the reasons that you're there, if you're a believer, one of the reasons you're there is because God has people He wants to love through you. People he wants to change through you. You just gotta open your eyes, look around. See, I'm thankful for a praying grandmother who interceded for her family and believed in the power of God to transform. She's the first Christian in our family, married to an absolute heathen, an abusive drunkard. An outlaw, a man who shot people, who sold bootleg whiskey during prohibition. Not a good guy. She probably made a mistake when she married him. God saved her. She saw something different in him. She prayed for him. He became a believer. She prayed for her sons. I I lived with them for about three months in Los Angeles, and their habit was every day following, we, we would have breakfast, uh, 
dinner and supper. That's how it was. It was. They were from Oklahoma, Texas, whatever. And it wasn't lunch. You didn't have lunch. You had breakfast, dinner, and supper, and all of them were big meals, you know. And so we were short, uh, short uh, large people. And every day after the dinner, the noon meal, took a half hour to pray. We'd go into the living room. You'd kneel down and you'd pray. I'd go to sleep. They would pray. And I would hear my grandma and my grandpa interceding for every member of our family. We had some cousins that were straying from the Lord. They believed in the transforming power of the gospel because of what had happened in their life. And I... I, I'm thankful for the people who were strategically placed in my life, who believed in me before I had the strength to believe in myself. Could you think of some of those people for you? Thank God they were there. It was easy for Paul to believe because he had a personal story. (laughs) I I can only imagine Onesimus being introduced to Paul. He comes to Paul. Paul's in prison, but Paul's a really good guy. You know, he's writing these letters and all this kind of stuff. He's telling him about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Onesimus would just follow God, God could change his life. And Onesimus is doubting all of that. And he says, you know, Paul, you don't know how bad I am. I can imagine Paul saying to him, seriously, dude. You don't know who you're talking to, man. You don't hold a candle. Man, I used to kill Christians. Huh? When I got saved, you go and read this, Acts chapter 9, 10. When I got saved, he says, there wasn't a church in town that wanted me. They wouldn't even let me in because they didn't believe it was the truth. They just thought I was going to be spying on them. In fact, I'd have been out on my own, but a guy named Barnabas took a risk on me. He took me into his home and he discipled me and he showed me how to be a believer. And finally, when it was time, he introduced me to the rest of the church and people didn't believe, but they believed in Barnabas and so they started to believe in me. Dude, I've got a story and your story isn't anything. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to believe for you. Are you tired of looking over your shoulder wondering when the next shoe is going to drop, when they're going to arrest you? You know, God can give you peace if you'll just follow him. I can imagine Onesimus saying, well, you know, but what about, you know, what if I get arrested? What if, what if this? What if that? What if, and he, no what ifs, no what ifs. Listen, God knows where you are. God can exchange your fear for peace and he has a plan for your life. Why don't you just follow him? Follow me as I follow him. And Onesimus encounters the power of the gospel to change his life. Paul invites him into his world. He disciples him. He shows him how to live. He became his accountability partner. And then he writes a letter to Philemon. When the time came, he says to Onesimus, okay, now you're going to have to go back. You've got to make things right. And you know what? That's one of the signs of somebody who's truly repented is that over time they want to make restitution. If you have somebody that doesn't want to make restitution, they may not have truly repented. And sometimes it takes a while. Paul didn't do it right away. Didn't, you know, get Onesimus down, pray for him. Okay, now you've got to go back. No, it, he discipled him. It was a period of time. He says, okay, now you've got to go back. You've got to make things right. And, uh, and so Paul writes a letter. He says, so if you consider me your partner, give him the same welcome you would give me if I were coming. If he has harmed you in any way, this is funny. Now listen to this. Listen, this, this is funny stuff. If he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, guess what? He had stolen something from him and it harmed him. If he has done that, charge me for it. <laughs> little old Paul. In fact, earlier he says, just remember, I'm your friend, little old guy in prison. You know, he's pulling that card, not the apostle card. He says, he says if he stole anything, charge it for me. 
me, Paul, I write this with my own handwriting. I will repay it. And I won't even mention that you owe me your very soul. <laughs> it's great stuff. There's some funny stuff in this chapter. Every city needs people who will believe in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third thing I learned from this is Philemon reminds me that every city needs people who won't allow their own imperfections as an excuse to stay on the bench and out of the action. Philemon is flawed. He's not perfect. And he has a church in his house. Philemon 1, 2, he says, I'm writing to you and I'm writing to the church that meets in your house. How did that happen? We don't know. But we've got an idea. We know that Philemon somehow heard Paul preaching in Ephesus. And so he probably goes back to Colossae, the city that he lives in, and he begins to gather with a small group of believers. They're kind of a missional community. What does that mean? They're a tight-knit group, tight-knit relationships. Their lives have been transformed, and they're trying to live their life as if they're on mission from God. They're trying to live the Jesus life with all of their friends and neighbors. And as they do, people become curious and they come to know Jesus. We're going to talk about this during the series. And their little group begins to grow. And they, 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 they don't have a building. They have a house. And they're filling up the house. The neighbors are complaining about the traffic and all this kind of stuff. And so maybe the leader goes, we need somewhere else to meet. Hey, Philemon, you got a big house. You're a Christian. You've been a Christian for, you know, six, eight months, a year, two years now. I want you to be a leader. And I'm glad Philemon didn't go, oh, man, you picked the wrong guy. How many of you know you always think that God's picking the wrong person when somebody asks you to step up to the plate and do something more than you're doing already? You don't know. I mean, I'm a slaveholder, you know. I mean, I haven't got to the place where I really understand all that stuff. And I've got these vices. I'm not exactly perfect. I don't have a seminary degree. What's interesting is in the letter, Paul doesn't even confront him on the slave issue. Look at this. This is important to understand. He says, perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while so you could have him back forever. <laughs> okay, that's one way you could think of it, I guess. He is no longer just a slave. Now, he could have said, he's no longer a slave. Dude, you're wrong for owning slaves. And he says that in other places. I mean, he makes a case against slavery in First Timothy. Here's what I think he did. There's a time to confront. There's a time to stand up and make a stand. But there's also a time to allow the Holy Spirit to do His work. And if you're going to do it the right way, you've got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. Do you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your husband who you think is, needs you as a Holy Spirit for him? Do you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your wife, guys? Do you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your kids? The Holy Spirit is at work in your coworker. And sometimes you've got to go, God, what are you doing here? What's my part in it? And Paul discerns that his part is not to upset the social system. His part is to change one life. And he said, so here's what I want you to do. I want you not to see him as just a slave, but I want you to see him as a brother. Now, he will mean much more to you both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. Sometimes you just need to chill and let God do his work. And here's what God did. This is cool. If you study history, 
Slavery died out in the Roman Empire, much as a result of the Christians and how that God transformed lives to where that slaves and slave owners both became brothers and they went to church together and they began to see each other with, with value and they began to see, this, this isn't right. And so God transformed it from the inside out and the whole system collapsed. I know that's idealistic and there are times that you've got to get up and, you know, do what you've got to do, but you've got to listen to God. What is He saying in this situation? At some point, Philemon said, I'll open my home. I'll do what I can. I'll trust God to fill in even though I'm not all together. He didn't use what he wasn't as an excuse to keep him from becoming what he could be. All right, real quickly, let me give you, let me close this thing down. Let me give you a personal response. We're going to have a response time. Let me challenge you with what I think God may be saying. There are some of us that are gathered here who feel like everybody else has given up on you. You may even have given up on yourself. You probably have. You've tried to change. You've tried to be different, but there are patterns that begin early on. And, and you look around and the, you can just tell in people's eyes that they don't believe you'll ever change. And they've given up on you. Can I tell you this? God hasn't. God hasn't. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He sent the Holy Spirit to infill you so that you could have the same power inside of you, working inside of you, that raised Jesus from the dead. I could tell you story after story after story. I just told you two at the beginning of this thing of people who, everybody said, they'll never change. They came into a dramatic relationship with God. God got you here to slow down, to be quiet enough to hear Him say this to you. I love you and I will never give up on you. And maybe what you do during our response time is get up and go to a cross. And at the cross... You take a little piece of paper. Maybe you even write your name or your initials. Or you can put nothing on it. It just represents you. And you nail it to the cross. Just push it on the cross and say, God, here I am. I hope, I hope that you can change me. Maybe you've given up on somebody else. It might be a family member. It might be a friend or coworker, And you may just want to go to the cross and remind yourself of the power of God. That nothing is impossible with him. Some of us in this room, you may be somebody that God wants you to be a champion for someone else. It may be a person, it may be a group, it may be a neighborhood, it may be a group of people. But God is planting a burden inside of you. And there's people that maybe there's injustices in the world or maybe there's somebody that, man, they don't believe in themselves and you're just feeling something and and God is calling you to be their Barnabas. God is calling you to be their Paul. God is calling you to be their, their person that will believe. We've got a little card in the bulletin. You may want to look at it. I, I, I love my city through loving blank. I don't want you to fill that out today. I'd love for you to struggle with that because I believe all of us are here for a purpose. You know, here's, the, here, here's what, oh man. It's never been our desire to build the biggest church or the greatest church or, or what in Charleston or anywhere else. To me, that's not serving the city. That's plundering the city. Frankly, a few years ago, I didn't know it, but I, I think we're plundering the city. 
we turned it around. We've begun to serve the city. And out of this series, I want to see that even bigger and better. And every one of us fulfill our calling of being just a missional group of people who serve the city. And we're looking for people everybody else has given up on. And, and God uses us to transform lives through the power of the gospel and transform communities and transform things that are broken through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I struggle with. If Seacoast vanished tomorrow, would this city miss us at all? If you vanish tomorrow, would your neighborhood miss you? Or would they be glad you're gone because you're not much of a citizen? And maybe you need to wrestle with that. Who, who, is there, what part of the city does God, you say, well, you know, I don't know. It's okay for you to hitchhike on somebody else's Onesimus for a while. That's all right. You know, somebody else has a passion, somebody else has a burden, they share it and you go, I'm not sure, I've got the same thing. But you know what, I'll join you with that. I'll be a part of your adopt-a-block group, you know, because I really haven't figured out what it is that God's got me. But I'll serve somewhere, whatever it happens to be. Third, it may be time for you to stop making excuses and step up and lead. There are some of us that there are a group of people waiting for us to lead. For some of you, it's in your home. Maybe you're a dad in the home and your kids and your wife are waiting for you to be the spiritual leader of your home and you've got all kinds of excuses why you can't do that. Listen, next week I'm going to talk about how to be the spiritual leader in your home. How to be the spiritual leader in your group. You know, you may not be a part of a nuclear family, but you've got a group of friends. Maybe you're on a sports team or maybe you're on a work team or maybe you're just a group of people, a small group or whatever. It just seems like it lacks for leadership. And God is saying to you, you know what? I want you to stand up. I want you to be a leader. You need to be like Philemon and go, you know what? Okay, here's my house. (laughs) And maybe God is saying that to you. I don't know what he's saying. But I, I, I'm, I, I'm passionate about the fact that God wants to change individuals. He wants to change families. He wants to change neighborhoods. He wants to change communities. And he wants to change cities because there's a corrupting power at the core that comes from the enemy. And we have the power and the truth and the ability to do it if we'll just live missionally for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your gospel. God, I thank you for the power of the gospel to transform lives. And God, I just pray that you would take maybe some of the words that we have spoken today and that you would burn them home into each of our hearts and our lives. We ask that you would help us to take these next few moments just to be honest with you and to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.